Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than 100 interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, veterinarians, artists, and more who helped found and shape the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson, and today we revisit a conversation that I had with an iconic member and founder of the marine mammal field. Dr. Sam Ridgway was a scientist and a veterinarian and one of the leading experts in marine mammal medicine, as well as the original dolphin doctor. His pioneering work in dolphin anesthesia physiology, and development of medical technology allowed marine mammal care to evolve and flourish. Dr. Ridgway spent more than five decades working in the field, not just contributing to the knowledge base, but in many cases, actually defining it. He was one of the founders of the Navy Marine Mammal Program beginning in the early 1960s. He pioneered the study of trained captive dolphins swimming freely in the open ocean. He conducted some of the earliest and most useful studies to understand why dolphins could dive so deep. Colleagues often thought of him as the father of marine mammal medicine. He truly was the dolphin doctor. Dr. Ridgway died in July 2022. I was fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to sit and interview Sam for a couple of hours at the Navy Dolphin Facility in San Diego. We sat outside on the floats of the dolphin pens with Coronado Air Base in the background while training ops were being conducted. It's possible you'll hear some extraneous sounds from the jets and helicopters in addition to the dolphin blows. I could drone on and on about his many awards and achievements, but I prefer to let him tell you what he thought was important to share. Let's listen to what Sam had to say about his career path. I went to uh, Texas A&M University and uh, from the age of 12, I wanted to be a veterinarian uh, because I had observed uh, veterinarians coming to our farm and ranch in Southwest Texas and I admired their work. And so from the age of 12, I decided to be a veterinarian and that meant I had to go to Texas A&M University, which at that time was an all-male military institution. And, uh, uh, but uh, uh, it had a veterinary school and so uh, I uh, got my bachelor's in 1958 and my DVM, that's Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, in 1960. Uh, In the summer of 1960, I married my uh, sweetheart who had just graduated from Baylor University. And uh, at that time, there was a military draft. And so uh, being uh, young and having no children or physical disabilities, I had to go into the into the military, and Texas A&M had trained me for that. And so, as a result, uh, 
I got a commission in the U.S. Air Force and uh, I worked for four months at a, a large pet hospital in Houston, Texas. And uh, then we got, I uh, got married that summer, then we, uh, we got orders and my wife Jeanette and I uh, came to California as the Air Force had ordered and we were at Oxnard Air Force Base. Uh, which is now defunct on on the coast in Ventura County above Los Angeles uh, and the base veterinarian at Oxnard also had responsibilities for a Navy base called Point Magoo and a, another Navy base called Port Wyneme uh, and uh, my office did food inspections. We cared for sentry dogs at the bases. And at Point Magoo especially, we cared for research animals. Uh, there I met uh, some naval officers and scientists who wanted to uh, draft dolphins for the U.S. Navy. And uh, they didn't have any dolphins uh, at the time except for one that they rented at Marine Land of the Pacific uh, to start uh, trying to find out how dolphins could swim so fast and uh, they are also interested in dolphin communication. Uh, how, how, how could we communicate with them? And uh, so I started to bone up on dolphins because they were, uh, uh, I was very interested in working with them if, if they came to Point Magoo. Uh, so I uh, went to the local library and I also uh, uh, went to a nearby veterinarian in Thousand Oaks, California who uh, happened from time to time would treat uh, animals at a sea circus facility on Santa Monica Pier. It was called Pacific Ocean Park. And uh, so uh, uh, I went along with him on some of his calls down there and got acquainted with the trainers. Uh, we went out uh, with them a few times to see to uh, try to capture dolphins or pilot whales uh, for their exhibit. And uh, so I got involved in this simply because the United States Air Force gave me orders to go to California and, and uh, do this uh, veterinary officer job. And it was just pure luck that uh, there were people interested in marine mammals uh, there and so when I got out of the Air Force and or when I could get out of the Air Force I had a two-year obligation plus six years of reserve time and so when I finished my two-year active duty obligation I went immediately to work as a civilian health officer for the Navy Marine Mammal Program, and by then we had dolphins, and uh, we were—I was the first uh, full-time employee of the program.
uh, other than than uh, a couple of um, uh, military petty officers, uh, Bill Sconce, who was a, a training device technician, who then became a trainer, uh, and and uh, a few civilian scientists who worked part time on the program. After the Air Force, Dr. Ridgway spent his entire marine mammal career with the Navy at one California facility or another. One of Sam's major discoveries came from the deep diving experiments with a dolphin named Tuffy. These experiments were the building blocks for understanding how marine mammals could dive so deep without absorbing lots of nitrogen. I was of course helping to build the Navy Marine Mammal Program and, and uh, we uh, started out, I was interested in, uh, in anything about the animals and of course my primary job was to keep the animals healthy so that uh, scientists uh, such as uh, Tom Lang who was interested in their hydrodynamics, how they swim uh, so fast and how much energy they used in, in swimming and other scientists who were interested in communications such as Wayne Bateau and, and uh, Jarvis Bastian who came from uh, universities to uh, study at our laboratory. So a number of scientists would come there, some stayed for a month, some stayed for three or four months, some came periodically and uh, so it was my job to <coughs> Uh, keep the animals healthy so they could study them. And uh, then I got uh, interested in diving and uh, so we uh, we started uh, training one animal we called Tuffy which is the, the centerpiece of this book Dolphin Doctor that I did. Uh, it covers a period from when I started up until 1970. Uh, when we left Point Magoo and uh, so we were able to take him to sea for diving experiments, wanted to find out how deep he could dive, wanted to find out something about his physiology during diving and uh, we got him to uh, dive to the end of a cable, press a plunger that would turn off a switch that told us he was there. We also had a camera on the system so we could photograph him. We found out that his chest collapsed uh, as, and his lungs collapsed as he made these dives and when he would come back to the surface he would blow his air into a funnel on, on, on signal. So he would, he would, we could command him to dive down uh, and we had only a thousand feet of cable, so uh, we, our budgetary limitations there, uh, we were able to uh, have him dive to a thousand feet, uh, press the plunger, and then come back up to the, the surface. And um, before he reached the surface, he would exhale into this funnel, and that demonstrated uh, what the gas exchange was in his lungs. We were able to analyze the gas and, and uh, my uh, friend John Canwisher from Woods Hole came out and uh, did the lung gas analysis 
and uh, we published uh, a paper in Science uh, about that. The first time demonstrating uh, the physiology of how they uh, could uh, make a, a very deep dive without absorbing a lot of uh, nitrogen into the bloodstream. During a series of studies in the early 1960s that included deep diving and repetitive diving in dolphins, Dr. Ridgway and his colleagues came to some groundbreaking conclusions that are today still the foundation of what is known about deep dives in marine mammals. We came to the conclusion that, that they had several mechanisms. Uh, one is that, that uh, they have a vast network of blood vessels in the dorsal portion of the thorax called, we call Reedy Mirabola. And so the, all of the blood supply to the brain comes through there. It doesn't come through the carotid arteries like uh, our brain blood supply does. And so as a result, if there were produce any tiny bubbles, they get caught in this meshwork and probably never get to the brain and therefore never cause any damage. They also had, <clears throat> uh, we found out that they lacked uh, a clotting factor called Hageman factor. And uh, one of the <clears throat> things that uh, uh, that might help them to do is prevent any intravascular clotting, which is also involved in diving disease or decompression sickness. So with, with that lack, uh, that might help. The third thing we found is that they have a little more potent heparin. Heparin is a natural substance that we produce and sometimes uh, people that have a tendency for blood clotting have to go on a medication uh, schedule of heparin, but dolphins have a little more potent uh, heparin, dolphins and other whales, and so that also helps them to keep from uh, generating bubbles. So those were the three things that we concluded uh, from, from that study. There may be other aspects to it as well, but those were uh, what we concluded. Sam wanted the public to know and to understand how well the dolphins in the care of the Navy are treated. They receive top quality food, ongoing health care, enrichment through contact with other dolphins and humans. Exercise through ocean swims is also a key form of enrichment. In turn, the dolphins provide us with a critical service. They find things in the ocean that humans might not. These things might include lost equipment, or maybe enemy divers, or sea mines. First of all, uh, I think they would like to know that we uh, care for these animals in the very best possible way, and that we do everything we can to keep them safe. We've just completed uh, some analyses uh, that, that demonstrate uh, our case for that. Uh, in developing countries, there's uh, a well-known pyramid of, of age structure. Pyr countries that have poor sanitation, 
poor health care. Um, there is a pyramid of age structure. You don't have, you have lots of young and you have few old people. Um, when we looked at this uh, back in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s, uh, we saw the same pyramid of age structure uh, with our, uh, our dolphins, both uh, in ocean area and, and in the wild as well, because by that time, uh, people like uh, Dr. Randy Wells uh, down in Sarasota had been studying very carefully wild populations and uh, other, other scientists also had been studying this. And uh, again, there is this pyramid like a developing country. Uh, but in the Navy program now, uh, we're quite proud that in the Navy program we're quite proud that our, our veterinary care has developed a situation it's not only veterinary care, but husbandry and our trainers and, and the, our whole program. And now our age structure uh, is more like a country like the United States or Britain where there's good health care. And so it's, it's no longer a pyramid, you know, it's just fat in the middle and it, it tapers off up above. So uh, we feel that uh, we've made a tremendous progress uh, uh, in, in that area. The other thing that uh, early, from early in our program, uh, a, a, a physicist, uh, Dr. Scott Johnson, who was the first one to actually do an audiogram on a dolphin, find out they could hear uh, eight times a span of human hearing. And uh, he, his trained animal uh, was called uh, Salty. And uh, when we needed to uh, do a physical examination of Salty, uh, which I insisted on doing every uh, six months to make sure he was remaining healthy, uh, uh, this uh, uh, interfered with Dr. Johnson's work. So he trained Salty uh, to do a number of things. Uh, first of all, he trained him to lie prone on the water surface so I could listen to his heart and chest. He trained him to present his tail flukes so I could collect a blood sample. And he trained him to uh, take pills without them being inserted in, in a fish that he would just just take whatever, every day we'd, we'd have a vitamin pill and uh, whenever uh, we needed to medicate him, uh, he, he would cooperate in that. And, and our trainers uh, 
since he did that in about 1964 or 65, gradually our trainers have, have adapted that. And now it's pretty much adapted all over the world that, that we train these animals to cooperate. I say we, our trainers, train them to cooperate so we can have access to them, so we can uh, do diagnostic procedures uh, without uh, uh, much intervention. The animals cooperate completely in their care. And, and the PET scans that I mentioned and the other procedures that we do, uh, the animals are trained to cooperate in. For example, an M a magnetic resonance imaging, an MRI scanner makes a lot of noise. So what we do is we go and record the noise and then we have the animals slide out into a, uh, 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 an area, uh, a, a padded compartment, so to speak. And uh, the animal then listens to that sound. Uh, and the trainer is there and, and rewards the animal for being still and so as a result of doing this repetitively 20 or 30 times the animal gets accustomed to it so then we can take him to an MRI scanner and the trainer is there and the animal is comfortable because it's experienced the situation, experienced this noise before and uh, it doesn't cause any problems in there able to lie still as long as an hour uh, so we can scan scan their brain or scan their kidneys or or uh, whatever is, is needed so we can use this modern technology with dolphins and that's one of the better things that we've done is is, is become able through cooperation through training the animal to cooperate with us and we think they really enjoy doing this. We can ultrasound the animal we have right now in this group yeah, here. We have three pregnant animals that are that are about to calve any day now and uh, we can check them with ultrasound continuously uh, as, as needed. Uh, to see how the baby's doing. We can detect if there are any uh, fetal defects uh, in the offspring. And uh, we can find out if, if the animal, if, if the offspring is developing well. And also we can time the birth. We can know pretty much when the calf is gonna be born by series of measurements that we've taken of the skull, backbone, and so forth. Uh, using ultrasound. We also hope one day to be able to to use this methodology to test when hearing develops in the calf because the dolphin uh, baby, uh, one of the reasons we think that hearing and echolocation are such a good, um, are so well developed in these animals is because in the womb they can hear the sounds of the herd, uh, the, the, the uh, 
sounds of the sea and the sounds of the rest of the herd pass right through the dolphin's body. And so we think that fairly early on, the dolphin gestation period is just about a year. And so we think by the time the, the little dolphin developing in the womb uh, is uh, six months along, that last six months, he's probably hearing all of these sounds, and that helps his brain. At that stage, the brain is what we call very plastic, and as a result, these auditory structures develop. For example, they have uh, one of the main auditory nuclei is the inferior colliculus. It's 12 times bigger in a dolphin than it is in us, even though our brain size is about the same. Um, so the, their, their auditory system is very highly developed and that's uh, the echolocation system that uh, makes them so helpful to the Navy in finding mines and finding intruders and doing the things that they do for the Navy is based on this highly developed echolocation system. It's based on a very good hearing capability and a brain that's a central processing computer for this echolocation system. Sam offered some excellent guidance for students to consider. Well, uh, affiliate uh, yourself with uh, organizations that are involved with marine mammals. We have uh, the... Uh, the, um, uh, in, in, our, in our field, in veterinary medicine, we have the International Association for Aquatic Animal Medicine, which uh, we started in, in 1969 with 19 members, now has uh, seven, seven or 800 members. Um, they work at marine parks, oceanariums, uh, uh, laboratories, uh, and they, whereas before uh, we were working mainly with marine mammals, now they work with sharks and all, all sorts of fish and manatees and alligators and other things that are in uh, marine parks. There's also a larger organization called the International Marine Mammal Trainers Association. So if you're interested in training and psychology and that sort of thing, uh, all of these have student chapters. Uh, and so associate with them. There's also many, uh, the, the Society of Marine Mammalogy is of course an even larger organization. And that society has student chapters. There are many opportunities to uh, uh, do internships. In fact, here uh, we uh, take applicants uh, for a 15-week internship, and they can work here with us with the, with the animals and learn what it is to take care of, of animals, the husbandry techniques, some basic training techniques. And so uh, I think we take uh, 15 each quarter. So four times a year we have 15 
students that, that, that come here to, to learn. And there are many other internship uh, uh, opportunities to work with researchers around the world. The Society for Marine Mammalogy uh, on their website uh, uh, has a uh, uh, essay about how you would come to work with uh, marine mammals. And you can also order from them a, a, a pamphlet that uh, discusses how, how you can do this. And then, of course, in Europe, there's a European Association for Aquatic Mammals, and they have developed, um, they were the original uh, supporter of the journal uh, Aquatic Mammals. Uh, and there's also a European Cetacean Society. So if you're in Europe, uh, those are two organizations that you might uh, attach to. The other organization I mentioned, IAAAM, IMATA, the Trainers Association, and Society for Marine Mammalogy are all international organizations. The IAAAM, uh, the veterinary group, just met in, 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 in Rome uh, just uh, two weeks ago. And we had people from the Middle East, we had people from China, from Korea, from Japan, uh, uh, and uh, of course, many from the U.S. And, and, and quite a number from Europe as well. So it's, uh, these organizations have spread this technology and science uh, all over the world. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's really happened uh, at an accelerated pace over the last 10 years. That's all we have time for today, and I thank you for listening. If you would like to watch Dr. Ridgway's complete interview or other Scientist HP interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top.